Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. This week on the Project Censored Show, for the first segment, we celebrate Banned Books Week. It's the last week of September, and since 1982, the American Library Association, along with the Banned Books Week Coalition, celebrates the right to read. Today's program welcomes to the show two members of the coalition, Jackie Farmer from the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, as well as Nora Palazzari from the National Coalition Against Censorship. We'll talk about why banning of books is still a problem in the United States, and we'll focus on the theme this year of Banned Books Week, Books Unite Us, Censorship Divides Us. Later in the show, we're joined by journalist and author Michael Levitin, looking back at the Occupy Wall Street movement 10 years later. We'll talk with Levitin about his new book just out from Counterpoint, titled Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy, today on the Project Censored show Banned Books Week and Generation Occupy. Stay with us. The ocean burn bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for our taxes while the prisons and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, those are capacity citizens. In the times for the master thief, combine conquer, steal a masterpiece. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we once again talk about Banned Books Week. Yep, Banned Books Week is upon us once again. September 26th to October 2nd, 2021 is Banned Books Week put on by the Banned Books Week Coalition. For those of you that maybe haven't heard of Banned Books Week, I would be surprised since we cover it every year and Project Censored is part of the Banned Books Week Coalition. Banned Books Week was launched in 1982 in response to a sudden surge in the number of challenges to books in schools, bookstores, and libraries. You can learn more about this at bannedbooksweek.org. Typically held during the last week of September, Banned Books Week, or BBW, highlights the value of free and open access to information. You can see why Project Censored is very interested in that. Banned Books Week brings together the entire book community, librarians, booksellers, publishers, journalists, teachers, and readers of all types in shared support of the freedom to seek and to express ideas, even those some consider unorthodox or unpopular. That, of course, is a key component of why we need Banned Books Week. And we're going to hear from two stellar guests, longtime champions of the First Amendment and the right to free expression, and, of course, also have been guests here on the Project Censored Show. We are joined by Jackie Farmer, the Senior Program Officer for Targeted Advocacy at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or the FIRE. Jackie Farmer, welcome to the Project Censored Show today. Hi, great to be here. And we are also joined by Nora Palazzari, Director of Communications, National Coalition Against Censorship, or NCAC. Of course, Chris Finan there, Project Censored, also part of National Coalition Against Censorship. They do absolutely fantastic work. And I know both Jackie and Nora are going to share website information, stories about Banned Books Week, but they're also going to talk more about what their respective organizations are doing in this segment. Nora, welcome to the program. Thanks. So Jackie, let's start with you. I gave just a brief introduction to what Banned Books Week is all about. Foundation for Individual Rights in Education is a lot about academic freedom. So how can you explain your connection to Ban Books Week. FIRE celebrates Ban Books Week because of our commitment to academic freedom and open discourse, like you already said. 
any opportunity to champion having hard conversations and engaging with material in a critical and open way is something that we're going to jump on. Um, in the past year, we've also launched a high school network that's been putting together lessons and other materials for teachers. So we're trying to do as much as we can to get folks engaging in conversations and open discourse around literature and their everyday lives. And that's, of course, something that Banned Books Week really calls attention to. Organizations like the FIRE and like National Coalition Against Censorship, all the groups in Banned Books Week Coalition are hyper aware of these kinds of issues. But for a lot of folks in a place like the United States, we hear often every year, Banned Books Week. Is that celebrating banned books? What do you mean banned books? The United States has the First Amendment. We don't have censorship or banned books in the United States. Nora, tell us more about that. I guess I would say that NCAC is a first responder responding to book challenges in schools and libraries. And we've been pretty busy for like 45 plus years. So I guess I would say there definitely is censorship in the United States. But I think what people maybe don't realize is how common these challenges are. Everybody wants to censor. What we say frequently is that censorship comes from being afraid of new ideas. And everybody's afraid of new ideas at some point. Or afraid of old ideas, afraid of what reading old ideas might bring up. So it's not uncommon for us to see censorship coming from communities that people might be surprised to hear that censorship is coming from. I think that's one of the most important messages of Banned Books Week. And again, I can't emphasize enough what you just said, Nora, at Project Censored, also around 45 years this year. We monitor media censorship from wherever it's coming, and it comes from all angles. And I think when people see something and agree that you're championing something and saying, hey, that shouldn't be censored, confirmation bias may play a role there where people will decry censorship of that which they, they love. But when it comes to some area where people are, as you said, Nora, unfamiliar or as the Banned Books Week site says, unorthodox or unpopular ideas, suddenly those same people become strident supporters of censorship and banning of all sorts without a hint of irony or self-reflection. Let's go back to you, Jackie Farmer. I know that you've been busy as well this year. Can you tell us about a couple of cases, particularly, I know that you've been working with the fire on some recent cases that have been happening in Ohio. Yeah, a public school in Ohio collected copies of a textbook that was being used in a writing course at a local college. And some of the seniors at the local high school had been taking this course as part of Ohio's College Credit Plus program, where they can go to their local college and have that awesome opportunity of pursuing more education. But the town's mayor claimed that a handful of the writing prompts in the book, which contained over 600 writing prompts, none of the ones he pointed out, I believe, were even being used in the course. Um, he claimed that they constituted child pornography and said prosecutions would follow. So while the police denied that the books constituted anything like that, they did announce that they would be investigating into whether the books violated the law. As far as we know, this is not the case. Parents were warned about the course content and the materials being used. And Ohio law even specifically forbids changing course contents for high school students taking it because they're taking this awesome opportunity to engage with college students and their professors in this kind of academic discourse and have this opportunity to start their college careers ahead of time. That's exactly the same here in California. 
right? I teach at a, a community college, chair a couple departments, and one of the robust opportunities that are out there for students are these programs for high schoolers that they can come in and take college credit courses. And of course, we're not supposed to speak to the parents. It's college. We're not supposed to change any of the content for any of the students. And in this case, the example that you're talking about, you can learn more at ncac.org or you can learn more at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, thefire.org, so you can get more information there and also at bandbooksweek.org. And I urge you to go and look at these stories online to read them. They're meticulously researched. They're linked. You can go and really find out the details of what's going on in these cases. And the the case that you're talking about right now, Jackie, is in Ohio, Hudson, Ohio. That's not far away from my old stomping grounds in western PA, western Pennsylvania, and eastern Ohio, Cleveland area. Uh, These were courses, too, offered by Hiram College. And you mentioned that this is part of a writing exercise. In fact, I'm looking here. It says 642 things to write about. So that would mean 641 to not write about as long as you found one thing there. Nora? I would say if you want a lot of detail on this case, the letter that we signed on to that FIRE led is really detailed and actually really interesting. So I would, I would go read that at either of our websites. NCAC also wrote directly to the mayor because we feel that he was really close to being in what could be violation of the First Amendment, or at least really violating the principle of the First Amendment, particularly as a government official, to suggest that teachers would be prosecuted for distributing educational material. And also writing prompts in a textbook are absolutely not legally child pornography. They just aren't. And so suggesting that they are really does a disservice to people who have been negatively affected by sexual abuse or child abuse. It just minimizes a terrible crime and also chills teachers' abilities to do their jobs. So having 642 ideas to start with seems like a great number. And if you don't want to write about the one that is potentially about some sort of sexual experience, then you probably have 640 others to choose from. Yeah. And, and to reiterate, the prompts were, as far as I understand, purely say write about a sexual situation. They were, had nothing to do with children. It was just the fact that they might be read by a, a high school student, a senior. It's my understanding that this is a college course taught in the high school, that they don't actually leave campus to take it, but that the the course still needs to be precisely what would be taught at the college in order for the students to qualify for the college credit. So not only were the prompts optional, taking this course was optional. And parents were informed that none of the material would change and that they would be expected to be interacting with material designed for college students. So these kids and their parents went into the class knowing that they were going to be encountering college level material. This is remarkable. Jackie Farmer, you wanted to jump in. The meeting was filmed and you can hear the words coming right out of the mayor's mouth. Not exaggerating in this situation at all. You can find the footage. You can find the voices. Um, It's all right there. Yeah. And one of the so one of the groups here and I'm I'm on the fire site now. I'm looking at that. And of course, that's where the letter is linked that Nora uh, mentioned. There's a group called Moms for Liberty Summit County. And of course, there's now attorneys involved. The mayor is involved. The principal of the school said that they were going to collect the books. They were collecting, that is, seizing the books from students. Jackie Farmer, really quickly, what's wrong with that picture? Pretty much everything. 
As far as I understand, it seemed like the high school had done everything they should beforehand. They made sure parents were aware. Seizing books is, I don't even know where to start with saying why that's bad. Not not the best look, especially right before Banned Books Week. It's, it seems like they might have gotten the memo that Banned Books Week was coming up, but they might have misinterpreted it or not actually understood what Banned Books Week is about. Yeah, it's not actually a week for banning books. Yeah, exactly. And that's, <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Fire All the Time defends people, even if they are calling for censorship. That's something that people are allowed to do. It's when you're taking this actual action to um, remove and limit others' ability to engage in discourse and engage with content where it crosses the line. There you go. And the theme this year for Banned Books Week is Books Unite Us, Censorship Divides Us. I'd like to remind our listeners you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacific Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. This week, first segment of the program, we are celebrating Banned Books Week. We have members of the Banned Books Week Coalition here with us. We have Jackie Farmer, Senior Program Officer, Targeted Advocacy at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or The FIRE, online at thefire.org. And also, we have Nora Palazzari, Director of Communications at the National Coalition Against Censorship, ncac.org. Learn more at bannedbooksweek.org. We'll continue our conversation about Banned Books Week after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, first segment, it's Banned Books Week. It's not a week that celebrates the banning of books. It celebrates the right to read. This year and every year since 1982, the American Library Association, working with a coalition of various groups, including Project Censored, National Coalition Against Censorship, The Fire, and many, many others, call attention to the fact that censorship of books and banning of books is a real threat and a problem in a place like the United States. You can learn more at BannedBooksWeek.org. Banned Books Week is September 26th to October 2nd this year. And the American Library Association Office for Intellectual Freedom compiles lists of challenged books as reported in the media and submitted by librarians and teachers across the country. Cataloging for the year 2020, there were almost 300 instances recorded of challenges to books. But what we understand about the data and from the ALA is that these are only the reported incidents. So this isn't all of the incidents. In fact, it's estimated to be a really small percentage of times where books are challenged or are successfully censored and nobody seems to mind or, or the word doesn't really get out about it, which is, again, why I think Banned Books Week is so important. The American Library Association Office of intellectual freedom so important, and our guests and the organizations they work for, National Coalition Against Censorship. We have Nora Pelizari, the Director of Communications, and from the FIRE Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, we have Jackie Farmer, Senior Program Officer for Targeted Advocacy. Nora, how about that? What we just talked about, we just mentioned the case in Ohio at Hudson High that, that you were talking about that involves the principal, the mayor, a college. I mean, quite a triangle here of forces trying to, to censor. But how about this issue we just brought up? We don't know how often these kinds of challenges take place, which is why we need these organizations. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with the number of these kinds of challenges and maybe even about the type of challenges maybe that you see more often? Censorship is a crime of silence. It's an attempt to silence. And so when it's successful, it's very quiet. And so I think that's why a lot of these challenges go unmentioned. Because people don't always know what it is that's happening when it happens. You know, if a book gets taken off a reading list, nobody notices unless they were really paying attention beforehand or unless it was a book someone was 
really hoping to read or looking forward to reading. So most of these challenges aren't big, splashy school board fights. Most of these challenges are a parent complains, a principal is trying to avoid controversy and so just quietly has a book removed and a teacher doesn't really know what to do next. They're very busy. And so they find another book and they move on, but it disrupts teaching. It means that teachers are having to redo their lessons. It means that teachers aren't able to teach what they think was actually the best choice for their class and their classroom. And potentially it takes away the book, the book that was going to get that one student, that that one student who wasn't particularly interested in English class or hasn't really felt connected to any of the books that they've been required to read or is really struggling with something that in their community is really difficult to talk about and reading about someone else going through it in a book was going to be what saved that kid's life. That's what happens. That's such an important point to make is that when you look at that list of books compiled by the Office for Intellectual Freedom at the American Library Association, they're often books written by authors of color or written by authors from historically marginalized communities about those very communities and about the issues of oppression and challenges faced in those communities that are the exact kind of stories that a diverse student body needs to hear to understand where their place in society not just is, but ought be in a better world. In other words, we can't address challenges when they're suppressed or when they're not openly discussed. And I know at the fire, Jackie Farmer, that's why they're such ardent supporters of academic freedom and hearing multiple perspectives from various angles. Could you comment on that similarly from the the question I had asked? To build on what Nora was saying, one of the other important reasons that this literature, there needs to be open access to these sorts of things is because these books are ways to reflect yourself and help engage you with seeing these reflections. It's also a way to learn about other people. You know, I never went to a library to learn about what I knew. I went to find something about something I don't know about. And especially where fire is concerned, when students get to college campuses, many times they're faced with folks from other walks of lives or other areas of the country that they just don't know anything about. And you know, having this opportunity to read literature and firsthand, especially like memoirs or anything that's like a firsthand experience um, from folks that you may have never had the chance to engage with can really help students and help people have this awesome opportunity to meet and engage with folks of other different views and different lifestyles. Having that opportunity to read about those sorts of things first is also an incredible thing that I don't think we can discount. Nora, I think you have another example that you were going to bring up that NCAC was recently working on in Texas. There's been a sort of ongoing controversy in Leander, Texas, which is near Austin, over a diverse slate of books were added to classroom libraries and were added to um, some book club units in their English language arts classes. And the whole list got challenged. This wasn't a parent complaining about a book. This was complaining about an entire hundred plus book list. And every single one of them had to be reviewed. And a good number of them got pulled or re-leveled. And it's still ongoing because some of the books that weren't removed, parents are now escalating and trying to challenge them in new and different ways, trying to get them pulled from the libraries entirely, not just from the classrooms. And I think what we're seeing is 
what's happening in the wider culture, in our political culture wars, is infecting school board meetings and students and teachers are are kind of the collateral damage. It's really devastating. The flap about critical race theory has been the biggest straw person. The loudest critics of it seem to have never heard of it before and don't know what it is. And I hate to say it, but some of the people that are screaming about it in a positive way also don't understand necessarily the historic area academically where this came from. And it somehow just blew up as part of that culture war. Like you said, Nora, all of a sudden people are fighting about something that, again, I've been teaching for 21 years at the college level. And, you know, while I I certainly talk about systemic racism and slavery and a whole lot of horrible elements of our racist history, I didn't need critical race theory to do it. It seems like it's just been blown up as some target for the right to tear apart and pretend, and this is what you were just getting at, pretend that there's this strong indoctrination going on this left-wing indoctrination going on in our schools. I think it's really dangerous to conflate teaching and indoctrination. That's really, really dangerous. And NCAC is a nonpartisan organization. We are not coming at this from a political position. We are coming at this from the position that students should have access to as many viewpoints as possible. They should learn about history through all kinds of lenses, and they should learn as many diverse perspectives and stories as possible so that they can learn how to be critical thinkers, how to be creative thinkers, and how to be active citizens. And so preventing students from accessing information because you disagree with the viewpoint of that information is really hamstringing teachers' abilities to teach these skills and and have these classroom conversations. And it's really limiting students' abilities to be active voices in civil discourse. Absolutely. Jackie Farmer? Just echoing what Nora said, especially in the higher education context, a lot of these laws and bills um, are most likely unconstitutional. You know, the separation of the academy and the government, even in public schools, is incredibly important. And to preserve academic freedoms, professors need to have that ability to choose their own course materials. And even beyond that, we don't even know what lens the professors are coming at these materials with. You read materials to critically analyze them. You my political science teachers in college did not assign readings from things like Minecraft you know, horrible, just hate-filled political texts so that we would agree with them. They assigned them so that we could analyze them and see the context in which they were created in history. The point is, is you can't criticize something that you don't know anything about. You can't address it if you don't know what the context is, what were the struggles at the time historically, and then how have things happened since. We have a couple minutes left here. Nora Pelizari, Director of Communications, NCAC, National Coalition Against Censorship. What are some of your final thoughts you hope people take away for Banned Books Week this year? I just hope that people understand that you're absolutely allowed to choose to read what you want to read. And you're absolutely allowed to feed into what your kids read. A hundred percent. What I would say people are, are not allowed to do is decide what is okay for everyone to learn. You know, if you have a problem with something in the curriculum, voice that. Absolutely. That is your right. We would never say it's not. But school administrators have to make decisions based on educational reasoning and not based on the personal opinions and political viewpoints of people in the community or of their own personal opinions and political viewpoints. So hope this week during Banned Books Week, people can get out there and read some of these books 
And again, if you go to the American Library Association site, Office for Intellectual Freedom, or just go to bandbooksweek.org, or go to ncac.org, or you can go to, of course, thefire.org, Band Books Week stuff is front and center. We, of course, also highlighted it in our recent Project Censored newsletter. You know, some of the books on these lists have been on there for a while. Some of them aren't new either. I see there's one on here, Stamped. Racism, Anti-Racism, and You with Ibram Kendi and Jason Reynolds, who I believe is the unofficial chair for the week, uh, Jason Reynolds. Um, you've got other books on here. Sherman Alexie still on here, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. Of course, John Steinbeck is still on here <laughs> of Mice and Men. No Mark Twain this year, but... But again, Jackie Farmer, let's go to you. You are the Senior Program Officer for Targeted Advocacy at The Fire. Final words, what do you hope people are going to take away this year from Banned Books Week with its really great theme this year, Books Unite Us, Censorship Divides Us? I hope that this year people think about the kinds of conversations that the books on these lists can spark, regardless of what side you are and how you engage with the specific content in them uncomfortable conversations. Some of the best ideas come from that kind of discourse. So the more that we can make sure our professors are protected and their academic freedom is preserved, the better that kind of discourse will be. Like Nora said, pick up a pan book this week, read it. And if you don't want to read it, say why you don't want to read it. That's also an awesome way to engage with pan books week. Indeed, but you need to read it in order to explain to somebody why you don't want to read it, hence celebrating the right to read. And again, this is why books unite us and censorship divides us, and we can agree to disagree, but it's difficult to do that when we can't even access the material. And I think that the unifying theme here isn't to endorse any particular idea from any book, but simply endorse the right of anyone to be heard or to hear other ideas. Nora Pelizari, thanks so much for joining us. National Coalition Against Censorship. Jackie Farmer from the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedules for Banned Books Week to share these thoughts with the Project Censored audience. We'll definitely have you back on in the future. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks. Coming up next on the program, celebrating the right to read, we'd hope that you'd want to read a brand new book out by journalist Michael Levitin. It's called Generation Occupy. Reawakening American Democracy was published by CounterPoint on the 10th anniversary of the Occupy Wall Street movement. After this brief break, we'll talk to author Michael Levitin. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of today's program, we welcome author and journalist Michael Levitin. His latest book, Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy, was just released on the 10th anniversary of the Occupy movement by Counterpoint Press in Berkeley, California. From the fight for a $15 minimum wage, nationwide teacher strikes, Bernie Sanders' political revolution, and the rise of the squad, Black Lives Matter, hashtag me too. You can read in this new book how the Occupy movement helped reshape American politics, culture, and the groundbreaking movements to follow. So on the 10th anniversary of the Occupy movement, this book, Generation Occupy, sets the historical record straight about the movement's lasting impacts. We are delighted to have with us today Michael Levitin. He's a journalist and co-founding editor of the Occupied Wall Street Journal. Michael started as a reporter covering the Cochabamba Water War in 2000 for the English language newspaper Bolivian Times. He's earned a master's degree from the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism and later worked as a freelance correspondent in Barcelona and Berlin covering politics, culture, and climate change. 
Michael Levitin's writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian, Financial Times, Newsweek Time, and The Los Angeles Times, among other publications. His debut novel, Disposable Man, was published in 2019. And I, of course, am delighted to say that Michael teaches journalism with us at Diablo Valley College in the San Francisco Bay Area, where he lives with his partner and daughter, Michael Levitin. Welcome to the Project Censored Show, and congratulations on this amazing historical account of the Occupy movement in your new book, Generation Occupy. All right, Mickey. Great to be here. Occupy changed the political landscape in the United States in many, many, many ways, and you talk about that in your book, which is a riveting account, history, memoir, recordage, interviewing so many people. Let's just go back, Michael, 10 years ago. How did you stumble in? Where is your intersection with the birth of Occupy and, of course, the stellar publication you were part of, the Occupied Wall Street Journal, which is where I first heard about you? That's right. We go back now 10 years, you and me, just like Occupy. Stumble, that's a good word. That is how I wound up at Occupy. It was a stumbling. I was on my way out of New York City. I was supposed to go take care of personal business. I had a divorce waiting for me over in Europe. That's how the book begins. And I was on a drive across the country. I was making a documentary, shooting imagery and conversations about climate change, because that's now really in the discourse. But 10 years ago, not so much. It wasn't something that people were as aware of. The storms weren't hitting us as ferociously as they are now. But I was aware of it. I was interested in it. I was doing this documentary. And on my way across the country, toward the end of that trip, I heard on the radio about the first protests happening at Wall Street called Occupy Wall Street. I hadn't heard of it before. It was something that activists in the city had gotten wind of from Adbusters, which put out the call that summer to come down and occupy Wall Street. They wanted 20,000 people to show up with tents. What is our one demand, they asked. And this, of course, was we have to remember that Occupy, now that we're 10 years removed from it, it emerged not out of a vacuum. This was the year of the protester, as Time Magazine later called it at the end of that year. This year of 2011 started off in Tunisia with a bang. It was the beginning of the Arab Spring in January of 2011, where they booted out their longtime autocrat president. It led on to the ouster of Mubarak from Egypt and the Arab Spring, which took off across the Arab world, Bahrain, Syria, Libya. Of course, America then played a real role and got itself entangled with the Libyan part of the Arab Spring. And of course, along with Russia in the Syrian disaster that followed. But it really lit a fire and it showed that despite the financial collapse, the Great Recession, but really the financial collapse that had begun in America, it was our Wall Street financiers and corrupt bankers and and Washington system that failed to punish them. It was America that brought about the financial crisis of 2008. And yet, where we first saw the huge protests occur against this larger injustice was the Arab world. And I think it gripped everyone, took them by surprise, took me by surprise. And that movement shifted to Europe, to Spain, to Greece, to the anti-austerity protests. And by the time to bring us up to the fall of 2011, it was really ripe for an American revolution, an American moment. That's how I stumbled into Occupy on my way out, but I showed up at Zuccotti Park. It was one week into the movement and I was fascinated. I was riveted. The intensity there, the seriousness, I'd never seen a protest like this. It didn't look like an American protest. It really was a new 
generation showing up. And when I write Generation Occupy, it's because I do feel that it kicked off this new generation. Michael Levitin, this movement really changed the way we talk about politics in the United States. One of the key memes that comes out of that is the language of the 99% versus the 1%. That was really a momentous occasion where class matters really became the forefront of activism. And let's remember that this is during the presidency of Barack Obama, right? The first African-American president that comes into office after the quite contentious George W. Bush years, the war on terrorism, Obama rode into office sort of on the hope and change mantra. But it's interesting that if you look, some of our biggest social justice protest movements sprang forth not necessarily out of the Bush years or a conservative Republican, but out of a neoliberal Democrat, whether it was Occupy or all the things that Occupy inspired that you duly note, whether it's Black Lives Matter, Me Too. I mean, Occupy seemed to open these floodgates that continued during the Trump era. Could you talk about that? Yeah, and I think that relates also to the fact that we have a Biden era now, which could unleash a new wave of protests that we didn't see necessarily under Trump. Likewise, but going back to that, I think you're exactly right. So many people I talked to for this book, I did over 50 interviews with various people, activists, policymakers, historians, scholars. The failure of Obama to tackle, to address, to justly bring to punishment the bankers who took down our economy, that was the touchstone moment. Yes, the Bush years were really a nadir for activism. It's like the anti-Iraq war protests were enormous, but they failed to work. They failed to stop us going to war. And they also sucked the oxygen out of the room. Many people talk about this, that activism was just at a low point. Young people had no way to engage. If you wanted to be on the left, you wanted to be active. Yeah, there was the anti-globalization movement, but that really kind of fizzled out after the 90s. Once Bush came in, stole an election, 9-11, war in Iraq and Afghanistan, people tried to prevent it and failed. The environmental movement didn't really have a footing, and really the social justice movement didn't, which is why when Occupy came along, noted two and a half years, almost three years into Obama's presidency. It took a while. It took the financial crash, followed by the recession, followed by no real meaningful action to bail out underwater homeowners after the foreclosure crisis, students in debt, healthcare crisis, you name it. And finally, it bubbled over and people came out and, and initiated, as you say, this new language. I think that you know where my book begins with the Occupy Economy section it's essential to talk about the economics because that was the language that Occupy introduced was at the core of what everything that came after it. This language of the 99 versus the 1%, as you say, really going back to the FDR years, to the Great Depression, America has spent decades and decades since, frankly, the 30s and 40s, not addressing or acknowledging or even having the temerity to suggest that capitalism and our economic structures are just not working, that they're out of whack, that they fail the working and the middle class people. Because frankly, through the 50s and 60s and so much of the 20th century, it was largely working for the majority and it helped build out the middle class. But once you see the 70s come in and then Ronald Reagan crush labor unions, privatize, deregulate, make a party and just a windfall for the corporate class. And you see billionaires all of a sudden start to basically reshape and make our policies in Washington. 
you get the sense that really capitalism is not working, but no politician. And when you get to the point of, yeah, Black Lives Matter, but more than that to Bernie Sanders and, and AOC, no one until this new wave of progressive Democrats has been able to really confront and talk in public about the crisis of capitalism. Occupy opened the door to initiate this discussion that inequality is front and center, that the billionaire class is to blame, the corruption of Washington by Wall Street is uh, at the core of our dysfunctional democracy, and Occupy articulated all of this first and gave a springboard for the Bernie revolution and everything that has followed. Which I think is a really important part of that history that seems to get memory hold or maybe just at least left behind in the dust somewhere. Some of the questions swirling around this 10th anniversary of Occupy is, well, where did it go? And the echoes of 10 years ago with their leaderless and they seem chaotic and so on. And that was all kind of an establishment ruse to discount what they saw. The truth is, is that the establishment grew to be very afraid of the Occupy movement in a lot of ways, infiltrated them, tried to debase them, you know, like we've seen in movements for social justice throughout our history. So I wanted to get on a few of those in terms of why and how Occupy was so influential. And I remember 10 years ago at the time, the language of Occupy, it started to become pervasive in left circles. We occupied things. And you, of course, occupied the Wall Street Journal. Here's the paper for finance in the United States. But guess who they never talk about? The working class. I'd love to hear the story about what was behind the occupied Wall Street Journal. I think it was widely acknowledged at the beginning of Occupy that the media, which you so regularly and as a career, basically spend your time really trying to take apart and analyze why isn't the media more on the side of the 99%? Why don't we get those stories? Well, that was clear at Occupy because that's what the mainstream media sort of does. It scratches, it scratches its head. It stands on the sidelines. It wonders whether this group of people a young anarchist looking college age, they don't really have a message. They don't really have organization. Maybe they have a message, but what does this mean? We are the 99% against the 1%. What are their demands? And we saw that the media wasn't going to cover the movement adequately. So what we did two weeks into the movement, maybe 10 days, 11 days in, we put out the first edition of the Occupied Wall Street Journal. We had serious writers, Chris Hedges, a staple of the dissenting left and who himself has paid a price by being sidelined by the New York Times and others for having a voice too critical of mainstream politics and media. We took voices to articulate. I mean, the way that I could contribute to Occupy Wall Street wasn't as an organizer, as a direct action person leading marches. I, I slept there. I lived there until I got an apartment in Brooklyn so that I could actually sustain myself and do the work that I needed to do. But best way I could contribute was as a writer and an editor. And what we did, a handful of people, was start this newspaper that really blew up. We had donations. We got $75,000 thanks to a Kickstarter campaign. This was early on in the movement when it was so overwhelmingly popular and people wanted to hear the message. And we brought it to them. And we had these five, six editions put out, about a half a million copies, editions over the course of the next five, six months the first couple of months being the most dramatic and important ones. And anyway, I think we kind of helped change the conversation and, and showed people right there in our city what this message, what are these people about? Read about it, learn about it, see on the page. Don't take it from CBS and from CNN what they want. Learn from the occupiers themselves. But I think that in a way, what we really did was show 
other movements that have come afterwards that you don't need to wait for others to report your story. You do it yourself. And this is what you and Project Censored and so many continue to say about independent citizen journalism. And I think that Black Lives Matter, I think that the climate strikers, I think that March for Our Lives, the teenagers from Parkland demanding gun safety and gun laws, they all know intuitively because they come from a digital native generation where they have grown up with the phone in their pocket and with instant social media and sharing capability of the news, they know how to make the story themselves. I don't think anyone before occupied because we came along at a moment when when social media was just flourishing, when everyone suddenly had a phone in their pocket and you could take a viral clip and of police brutality in the street and upload it to YouTube and a half hour later, tens of thousands of people could be watching it. That hadn't happened yet. We made our media because we use technology and all these movements since have really built on that idea of becoming your own message maker. And certainly that's what we saw at Occupy with the Occupied Wall Street Journal. I'd like to remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacific Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Right now, I'm speaking with journalist and author Michael Levitin. We're talking about his new book, Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy. It focuses on the 10th anniversary of the Occupy Wall Street movement. We'll continue our conversation with Michael Levitin after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of today's program, we are delighted to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Occupy movement with author and journalist Michael Levitin. His newest book out on Counterpoint is Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy. This book looks at the 10th anniversary of the Occupy movement, what Michael Levitin calls Generation Occupy. Uh, and as we mentioned earlier before the break, the movement really changed the way Americans see themselves and their role in the economy through the language of the 99% versus the 1%. This movement also influenced so many other movements coming out of the 2010s from Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, March for Our Lives, Global Climate Strikes, Me Too, so many. And Michael Levitin does a masterful job in his book, Generation Occupy, interviewing over 50 people. And again, Michael was someone who was there. It's a deftly written book, part memoir, history, journalism. I'd say we're fortunate to have journalists like Michael Levitin who were there, who write this account. And it's a really gripping story. And it's really strongly influenced um, American politics in a lot of ways, as Michael Levitin was saying. And Michael, you also mentioned FDR, Franklin Roosevelt earlier, and you have a great epigraph at the beginning of your book from FDR when he accepted the presidential nomination in 1936. Roosevelt said, there is a mysterious cycle in human events. To some generations, much is given. Of other generations, much is expected. This generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. And you write that in the spirit of Generation Occupy. So, what do you mean by that? And how do you see that manifesting? I mean that nobody in today's generation, no one in Gen Z, no one who's 20 years old today or, or 30 years old, no millennials. And frankly, like me, 45 years old, a Gen Xer, none of us asked to be put on this precipice of history, on this culminating point, not to mention that our democracy is essentially um, hanging by a thread after an insurrection that now a large proportion of the country appears to have endorsed um, widespread and in a very public way, not only is our democracy really in this tenuous breaking point where it needs to be shorn up or reinvented to perhaps preserve itself, 
but our climate. I mean, all of this is a moot point. If we're unable to rescue our planet and to turn this juggernaut of capitalism into something that actually works for people and, and, and to save our earth, it's all pretty much a moot point. And decades from now, they'll be looking at us as the greatest failed generation and, and the failed era of humanity to save itself. So capitalism, yeah, in the 30s and Roosevelt's era, it really was. This was a do or die moment for capitalism and maybe for the American project because they were ready. The communists, the socialists, they went right to Roosevelt. And I described that episode briefly and said, you either give us these reforms because we are suffering. We are starving. We cannot sustain ourselves. You do this or you'll get a revolution. And he brought that to the financiers and the 1% of that era. And they actually brought us the New Deal. And Roosevelt achieves in this age seems so hard to imagine. Joe Biden attempting to refashion himself as this, the new Roosevelt, who's able to give us the congressional new deal, the new budget plan, and, you know, trillions of dollars thrown into everything he wants to do. But it needs to happen now. Or my point is that this is the generation we didn't ask for it. 20 year olds, people in college, the folks I'm teaching in journalism today who are just coming out into this world, no one asked for this crisis moment. And yet it's what's been put on your plate. It's what is demanded. And I think that now learning from what Occupy started, also what Occupy got wrong, so many of the flaws and failures of that movement, because it was such an explosive, experimental demonstration of democracy that we hadn't seen. This generation needs to really work on how it's going to refashion and strategize and write a blueprint for how it's going to bring about the changes, uh, because frankly, there's no alternative. President Biden, when campaigning, That was one of the fear issues that came up on the right was that this Green New Deal is going to be radical. And of course, we need radical action because we face radical challenges. But Biden said nothing would fundamentally change. He tiptoed around the Green New Deal. Yet the whole election that took place in 2020, of course, shrouded with COVID and the pandemic. But Occupy really gave rise to a number of far more progressive people getting into Congress and really were the wind in the sails behind Bernie Sanders. We'd been in Washington for decades. It's not, and Bernie hadn't necessarily changed that much. But Occupy really put a lot of wind in those sails and really gave us this group of people like the Squad. And there's always this argument that that people on the left are too radical, but they've got to push. In fact, even Franklin Roosevelt said, "Well, you've got to make me do it." So people look at Occupy and say, "Well, where did it go?" But you argue throughout the pages of the book that Occupy is everywhere. It's everywhere. And I think to your point directly, it remade the Democratic Party. I mean, everybody look back at the Tea Party, right? They came in uh, after Obama's bailout of the banks and anger on the right, the far right gave birth to the Tea Party, which was angry that government they saw as the failure, that government had given a free pass, but they were angry about the bailout of the banks as well. However, they blamed everything on government, overspending, mismanagement, corruption, What Occupy did was put the blame squarely on the 1%, on finance, on banks, on corporations for corrupting government, for writing laws and being the instigators, the sort of the, at the core of the deception of our democracy, our our, our crony capitalist system. Um, What the message that the Democratic Party had failed since Bill Clinton turned it into this centrist corporate democratic machine that shipped jobs overseas, that allowed Wall Street greed and profit to soar because of the so-called rising boat, the idea that our economy would do great in the 90s as it did and everybody would rise and have their fortunes rise, well, that failed. Inequality rose. That's what rose in that era and moving right into the, to the Bush years. 
the Democrats never had the courage to speak to working people and the er aspects of inequality that Occupy finally brought to the surface. The very first person who helped transform the Democratic Party message was, of course, Elizabeth Warren, who rode to office in 2012, one year after the start of Occupy, on a message explicitly tailored to this idea of the 99%, to regulating the banks, jailing the bankers, justice for underwater homeowners. Elizabeth Warren started to really shift the message and took on this new mantle for the Democratic Party. We saw people like Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York City run on a campaign of a, a tale of two cities, 99% message, and many mayors and legislators. But it really took till 2015 when Bernie Sanders exploded on the scene. And I have an interesting kind of really lesser told story in the book about how Occupy Wall Street people themselves, veterans from the movement, who were a bit adrift, not knowing where to go with that energy several years after the movement had pretty much collapsed and largely disappeared, they got in and started the People for Bernie campaign. Not part of the Bernie presidential campaign, but they began this online mobilizing effort using the tools and techniques and social media savvy that they had really cultivated, that they had basically created during the Occupy movement, they provided the springboard for the Bernie movement to explode, to take off virally, to create millions of people across the country who just embraced the message and wanted to find a way to engage and Occupy people through this group, People for Bernie, which I'm sure many of your listeners can recall, um, it was everywhere and it gave this platform and this engagement uh, method that kind of transformed the way that grassroots politics and digital electoral sort of politics and activism work. And with Bernie, we see what one who one of his great acolytes, you know, one of the volunteers at his Bronx office, AOC, who was a 29 year old bartender at the time, she then runs for office. She becomes the new face of the really anti-corporate, progressive, new wave of Democrats. And we've seen them not necessarily <laughs> have great success. They haven't just won offices everywhere, although there have been. Jamal Bowman is now in office. Corey Bush from Missouri is now in office. A number of them are coming up. But I think what you just alluded to at the start, they shifted the message. A Green New Deal was far off in left field before AOC with the Sunrise Movement, might I add, which grew out of Occupy, some of the people who were part of the new climate movement of Gen Z and millennials, they came directly from Occupy and they were trained by Occupy Wall Street organizers in new, more pragmatic, strategic techniques of organizing, they help give rise to the Green New Deal. They might not wanna call it that, but Biden is essentially embracing a Green New Deal, a new climate core. And so many of the democratic priorities we now see as mainstream, like a kind of a Medicare for all, like debt-free education, like childcare, like community college free, all of these issues, so many of them, abolishing student debt, those are Occupy priorities that were not discussable in this era. Now they are. Bernie, AOC, the New Democrats have made that mainstream. Michael Levitin, we have a few minutes left, and you do so many things throughout the book. And I mentioned already the different kind of hats you have as a writer. And you interviewed so many interesting and amazing people. So you weave this tapestry of all these people telling these fascinating stories. I want to see if you could comment on the writing element of it, you being entrusted to tell these stories. So there's you as part of the movement, you as journalist, you as now sort of outside 10 years later. What's the nexus of that like? That's been what's motivated me and been so interesting as a writer and a journalist. I try to also teach students now, my students, you know, journalism, we had that old notion of objectivity. 
that a journalist stands apart and removed from the events of his time or her time and that you're watching, you're observing, you're trying to get the most neutral and fair portrait of what's going on and you let the reader decide, right? Um, Occupy shifted my trajectory as a journalist. I was writing for Newsweek, Financial Times, LA Times, places that are firmly in the mainstream. And when I went and helped start the Occupied Wall Street Journal, I never quite felt like I could go back to simply that more neutral, objective style of reporting. But I think it showed me that I had a stake in the game. I felt passionately about this movement and the ideas it represented. The trick in writing this story, this account, was to both bring readers in. I splice into the book these vignettes and sort of datelined accounts where you get to see the movement through my eyes. I, I bring people in with a first person into Zuccotti Park, what it was like sleeping in the tarps on the cardboard sheets and really uh, living in this new moment and this, this vibrant movement. But the bulk of the book is really analysis and a step back approach. And I think you hit it kind of about the complexity I had to, in writing this book, I'm not a neutral observer. I favored the ideas. I favored the movement and what it represented in the decades since. This wasn't me spinning off a yarn, telling everyone how Occupy succeeded or, or, or did this or didn't. It's trying to present an accurate and fair and acknowledging many of the flaws and mistakes, trying to be a fair observer and give you an accurate portrait because I want people in the future who don't know about Occupy and you know young people who want to read about the history of activism and learn and study it to know really honestly where it came from. And yet I was part of it. So I had to wrestle with these two parts. I'm going to be there, but I'm also going to give you as honest a, a presentation as I can of it. And I hope that succeeded in that dual voice reporting that I brought to the project. It certainly worked for me. I think it'll work for a lot of folks as a historian and journalist. I think this book really toes that line pretty well. And you've gotten reviews in the New York Times. You had a great piece in the Atlantic recently. The way you lay out the book with contents, just so our audience knows, our audience are also readers. You lay out the Occupy generation, and then you break it up, occupying the economy, politics, climate, labor, activism, technology, Occupy world, and Occupy future. Kind of torre de force of all things Occupy. The book is Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy, which attempts to help us understand how we got to where we are today and how to draw on the lessons from Occupy in the future. We've been joined by author and journalist Michael Leviton. Michael Leviton, thanks so much for joining us on the Project Censored show today. Is there a website or any place that people may be able to get in contact with you regarding this work? Counterpoint Press is the publisher. You can certainly reach out to me. I would love to hear from listeners. MichaelLeviton.com. Drop me a note. Love to hear your impressions, answer questions, or get into dialogue. That's what this is about. And find the book at your local bookstore, independent bookstore, if you can. Absolutely. And you can go to MichaelLeviton.com to learn more. I have a lot of upcoming talks around this book, and many of them are online. So our listeners across the country can tune in if they so choose. The book, Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy. Our guest has been author and journalist Michael Leviton. Thanks for coming on, Michael. Great, Mickey. Bye-bye. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaigns. You've been listening to The Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Also the host, Anthony Fest, our senior producer. 
thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.